want to introduce this morning a very special friend of ours who's visiting us. He often comes and spends a week with us. He is someone, I told Bill Goddard this morning, that we have known each other almost 40 years. I guess it's 37 years or so that we have been acquainted. And his name is Father Robert Karras. He is currently a research scholar at the Franciscan Institute at St. Bonaventure University in New York. Uh, Not known to all of you, but he is a renowned scholar on the Gospel of Luke around the world. He's published several books on the Gospel of Luke. And he is also a renowned leader in the Franciscan order around the world. Uh, But most important, he's a dear friend of our family. He happens also to be the godfather of our older daughter who just had the baby boy. Uh, Among Father Karras's many works, I just thought I'd show you the most recent tome that just arrived. This happens to be a labor of love. This is volume one of what will be three volumes of St. Bonaventure's commentary on the Gospel of Luke, written in the 13th century in medieval Latin, and it has never been translated into any modern language completely. And Father Karras is translating St. Bonaventure's commentary on the Gospel of Luke into English. This is an enormous gift to the scholarly world. And this is Luke chapters 1 to 8. This came out. He has finished with the next section of Luke, and it's off to be printed, and he still has to translate the last third of the Gospel of Luke. And, of course, it has his uh, delightful 50-page introduction on how to read St. Bonaventure and so on. So this is very, very nice. Now, having said all that, Bob, would you stand up? Let us welcome you. I want to I want to say something because this is my 35th year of my ordination. I was ordained in 1966, and those of you who are savant in church history realize it was just then, just before then, that Vatican II ended. It's very famous work that did a lot for the Roman Catholic Church. And when I was ordained... You know, Protestants and Catholics had never gotten together. But Father Karras came to my ordination and laid hands on me. And therefore, I have the true apostolic succession. Very few Baptists can make that claim. (laughs) And so we, we have these many, many ties that go back over the years. So thank you for welcoming Father Karras, and he's going to lecture in my classes at Fuller this week as well, and give my students a great treat. Today we're going to turn our attention to the Christology of Hebrews. And again, the word Christology is that more sophisticated word that refers to the study of the person of Christ. Who was Jesus Christ? And theologians call that topic Christology. And Hebrews is quite prominent in the discussion of New Testament Christology for obvious reasons. And so we're going to look at the Christology of Hebrews today and next Sunday. I allowed two Sundays for the Christology of Hebrews I don't know if I have two Sundays worth of comments to make uh, in spite of the richness of Hebrews on this subject. But we will begin today, and please, again, as you might have questions, be sure you interrupt. Now, if you have your uh, study guide, just turn to page two. And I want to read, I know you can read, but let, let me read aloud this little paragraph called Summary of Hebrews. Hebrews 
is an exhortation comprised, as we have observed, of warnings and encouragements to the readers or believers to continue forward in their pilgrim journey of faith to the heavenly city of God rather than neglect their great and eternal salvation and fall away or lose heart. We're going to talk more about that pilgrim journey in a couple weeks. The last two Sundays, we're going to devote to a study of the pilgrim journey of the believer in Hebrews. This exhortation is set within a thoroughgoing Christological framework which indicates Christ's superior work of salvation as a basis for hope in the journey and Christ's identity with the trials of the pilgrims as the basis for encouragement in the journey. As Christ identified with the believers in the journey, so must the believers identify with Christ. So we'll talk about some of this in the weeks to come, but this is fundamentally the structure of Hebrews. So, as we observed before, it goes back and forth between Christology and the warnings and encouragements, or the exhortations to the believers. So if you now look down again at the outline, you will notice that Hebrews begins with the treatment of the finality and greatness of Jesus Christ. And in that opening section, basically from the very beginning up through chapter 4, verse 13, there are also the first set of warnings and encouragements and the second set of warnings and encouragements. Then starting in 4.14 all the way to 10.18, you can recognize that that's a large chunk of Hebrews. That's seven chapters. That's Hebrews has 13 chapters, so it's more than half of the chapters of Hebrews discusses the priestly character of the work of Jesus Christ. This is one of the fundamental Christological windows on Jesus Christ. And in that section comes the third great warning and encouragement. Then after 1018, there's a whole long section that I call the fourth or the macro warning and encouragement. And then we have chapter 13, which is sort of like an author's appendix to Hebrews, slightly different style, but it has several more or less miscellaneous concluding exhortations and further encouragement to the believers, and a very important encouragement in terms of the pilgrim journey of the believer that we will see when we get there in a couple of weeks. So you can see that in the structure of Hebrews, there is a lot of Christology that forms what I call the framework for the concern to give the exhortation. Now, what has happened in the history of the church? And I don't mean to be overly critical. But, you know, the church is, at one level, keeps becoming abstractly theological. And in the history of the church, there's a lot of attention to the theological concerns of the church, and much of that's appropriate. And so Hebrews has often been understood as a book about Christology. And that is important because Hebrews deals a lot with Christology, and it's very magnificent Christology and wonderful attention to Jesus Christ. But so much so that people began to think that the author of Hebrews wrote in order to provide a New Testament Christology. And so the almost unconscious understanding arose that the author of Hebrews sat down, as it were, and said, well, you know, I think the church needs a good Christology. I think I'll write a good Christology. No, that's not how it happened. As we have already observed, and we will see again, the author of Hebrews was fundamentally a pastor 
who was deeply concerned about a group of churches, we assume in Italy, and he wrote to these churches because the believers in those communities were in danger of falling away from the faith. They were in danger of giving up on the pilgrim journey because of persecution, the threat of persecution, oppression, the pressure to blend into society, the pressure not to stand for their commitment to the faith, which had led, as we saw, to various forms of ridicule, confiscation of property, imprisonment, public humiliation, and maybe imprisonment and maybe even getting close to death. And so the author of Hebrews was very concerned about this and he wrote to give them an exhortation which was this combination of warnings and encouragements not to fall away. And the method he chose to present this exhortation was the Christological framework. And so, in a sense, the framework has become, in some ways, almost more dominant than the exhortation because the Christological material takes so much space, it's so profound, it's so important, it's so fascinating that at one level it tends to overwhelm the exhortation that was directed to the practical life of the believers. I want us to be sure we understand sort of the relationship between these two as we now look at the Christology, remembering it's never abstract. And I want to repeat again that what he is trying to show is that the very person of Christ and what Christ did is the basis for hope. How can the believers have hope? Why can they have hope? Because of who Jesus Christ is and because of what Jesus Christ did. That's why they can have hope. And then why can they be encouraged? Because, as we will see, Jesus is presented as a person who also did the pilgrim journey. And it's almost as if Hebrews is saying, if Jesus can make it, so can you. And so we'll look at that aspect of the Christology of Hebrews as well. I find the Christology of Hebrews incredibly exciting because of its, what we often call its high nature. In other words, it exalts Jesus Christ. It gives Jesus Christ divine status. And because of its deeply profound almost clever nature as the author of Hebrews develops the thought of Jesus Christ as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. The first thing we're going to look at is the very opening of Hebrews. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to the first three verses. This, in a sense, prologue or introduction to Hebrews. And in these first few lines of Hebrews, we find a very profound introduction to Jesus Christ. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. Now that's obviously a reference to Scripture, what we call the Old Testament, the history of Israel, how God spoke by the prophets. This was the way God addressed God's people. But in these last days, he, God, has spoken to us by a son. Now the concept of last days is an important prophetic concept already present in Scripture. Last days in the Bible means when God acts for the salvation of God's people. And so you already know being good students of the Bible, that when Jesus preached, he said that the last days had come, that the kingdom of God had come, that the kingdom of God was right around the corner. He was announcing the presence 
of God. And when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he quoted the prophet Joel, and he said that the last days had arrived. And when Paul wrote his letters, in almost every letter he makes some reference to living at the end of time or living in the last days. He says the last days have come upon us. And that's true in other writings of the New Testament, First John, James, whatever text we can take. The early church had this concept of being in the last days because the last days meant when God acted. And the way God spoke in the last days, Hebrews says, was by his Son. He spoke in the past by the prophets. Now he has spoken by his Son. And of course, this is the dominant theme of the New Testament, that God sent his Son. As Paul wrote in Galatians, in the fullness of time, last days, God sent forth his Son. So Hebrews talks about the Son, i.e. Jesus Christ. Now listen to what he says about Jesus Christ. This is what we call high Christology, exalted Christology. He spoke by a Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom, through whom he created the world's, he is the reflection of God's glory, the express, uh, the exact imprint of God's very being. He sustains all things by his powerful word, and he made purification for sins, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited in more, is more excellent than theirs. There are about eight or ten affirmations about the Son here that enshrine those qualities that we usually identify with talking about the deity or the divine nature of Jesus Christ. Notice these again. God has appointed the Son heir of all things, the inheritor of all things, the authority for all things. God has given to the Son this great inheritance. It is through him that God created the worlds. And in most portions of the New Testament, the Gospel of John, Paul, here in Hebrews and in some other places, it talks about God creating the world through the Son. The Son becomes the agent of creation. That's in the opening prologue of the Gospel of John. It's here also. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. Now, the early church did face a very difficult task as a Jewish movement because the early church understood with absolute clarity that there was only one God. They were monotheistic, like Jews were monotheistic because the early church was a Jewish movement. And they lived in the Roman Empire, which was, generally speaking, polytheistic, in the Roman Empire, there were many gods. And most Romans who gave any attention to religion participated in the worship of multiple gods. It was a good idea to go to more than one temple, to have a relationship with more than one god, in order to, as it were, cover one's basis. And even if Romans had devotion to a particular god, it often was not exclusive. In some cases it was. But the early church had this monotheistic commitment. There's one God. And yet, almost from the very beginning, the early church understood Jesus Christ to be this exact 
representation of the divine image. A precise reflection of God. And the early church worshipped Jesus in the same way that it worshipped God. Because of Jesus' death and what it was understood to mean, and because of the conviction that God had raised Jesus from the dead, that God had exalted Jesus, that God had put his blessing, his seal of approval on this person and what was done and exalted Jesus Christ, the church worshipped him. And as this progressed into the second century, many Jews accused the church of having two gods. God and Jesus. And saying you're not truly monotheistic. And eventually from the second century on to the fourth and the fifth century, the church carried out incredible intellectual, theological, philosophical exercises in order to explain how they could be monotheistic and still worship Jesus as God and by this time also recognize the Holy Spirit as God and so as we know the Christian faith is Trinitarian one God in three persons we say and the church worked on trying to refine the language of how you say that and it remains one of the biggest theological conundrums in the church all the way to the year 2001 we still struggle on how to say it right with a Trinitarian faith. Now back to the first century, before the sophistication of the arguments of the second and the third and the fourth century, which became increasingly borrowed from Greek philosophy. Here the church is simply acknowledging that Jesus Christ is like God. So much so that he is the exact representation of God. There is a fine scholar in Scotland named Richard Balcom. And he's not the only one. There's another one. He happens also to be in Scotland named Larry Hurtado. In my estimation, these two scholars, I, I don't know about it, is Balcom originally a Scot? I don't think so, is he? I think he's English. And Hurtado is American, lived in Canada. And I learned, I was quoting, this is kind of irrelevant, but I was quoting Hurtado in class one day. And I have a student from Colombia, South America, whose name is Hurtado. And he raised his hand and he said, Hey, that scholar must be Hispanic. And I mean, I've known Murray Hurtado for years, and I said, no, he's not Hispanic. He doesn't look Hispanic. There's nothing about him that I would have ever considered him Hispanic. And my student said, well, Professor Scholler, you're wrong. He said, if his name is Hurtado, he's Hispanic. And I said, well, I'll send him an email and ask him. Sure enough. He is one-sixteenth Hispanic. Hurtado is a Hispanic name, and one of his great-grandfathers was a Hispanic named Hurtado, and that bears down. So he sent his greetings back to my student. I reported in class that, yes, indeed, Larry Hurtado was a Hispanic, and he sent these greetings in Spanish to the student. The student was thrilled. At any rate, this so happens both of these gentlemen teach in Scottish universities at the moment, Larry Hurtado and Richard Balcom. And what's significant about their work is they have both specialized, as it were, in trying to talk about how could the early church keep its monotheistic commitment and worship Jesus Christ. They're trying to nuance that hard question. And the answer in the simplest terms goes something like this. Jesus was not seen as a separate God. 
he was seen as part of worshiping God. I suppose in humble language we would say such a close partner that you couldn't make a distinction. So closely affiliated that if you worshipped one you had to worship the other. And in worshiping the two you were really worshiping the one God if that makes any sense. And so here in Hebrews the language is Reflection of God's glory, exact imprint of God's very being. Then it goes on to say he sustains all things by his powerful word. That's sort of the continuation of creation. Creation is sustained by the powerful word of Jesus Christ. And he made purification for sins. That's a reference to Jesus' death, which will be the basis of the high priestly work of Christ that will be discussed in Hebrews. So it's flagged here in this opening paragraph. And then he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, as we know from the biblical language, to be seated at the right hand of God is the position of honor, the position of power, and in the language we're using, the position of identity with God, at the right hand of God. Now, the language is an interesting issue because where did the church get language to talk about Jesus in this way? We can be reasonably confident that the church found language within the Jewish tradition in what we call the Jewish wisdom tradition, which was part of the Greek influence on Judaism at this time in which certain categories of Greek thought were mixed with certain categories of Jewish thought as it were and we get what scholars call the Jewish wisdom tradition. Now this tradition started already in the bosom of Judaism. You know from the book of Proverbs that you have an address to the young men of Israel and if you remember in the book of Proverbs, it is envisioned as these women standing on the street corner, beckoning to the young men. And there are prostitutes. And they're standing on the street corner and they're saying to the young men, come with me, come with me. And then there's another woman standing on the street corner who's chaste and pure and good and she says to the young men, come with me. And that woman is called Lady Wisdom. And so the theme of Proverbs is, if you follow wisdom, you'll get close to God. If you listen to wisdom, you can have a relationship with God. And so wisdom in the book of Proverbs is likened, as it were, to a woman who is chaste and good and a servant of God. And in the Jewish tradition, that image, that metaphor, grows. And by the time we get to the first century B.C., there's a book written that has the name Wisdom. A Jewish book called Wisdom. It's in the so-called Apocrypha of the Old Testament and in Wisdom chapter 7 and chapter 8 there's a long address to Wisdom who by this time in the Jewish metaphor has become as it were God's right hand almost like a special servant of God exalted and powerful and I want to read to you what the book of wisdom says about wisdom. The book of wisdom about wisdom, this sort of, whatever we want to call it, metaphorical power of God. So I'm reading from the book of wisdom. I have a Bible that has all the apocryphal books in it. 
the book of wisdom, chapter 7. I'm going to start with verse 22 and read into the beginning of chapter 8. Now what I want you to listen for, especially, are those phrases that sound just like the beginning of Hebrews, which you will hear. For wisdom, remember this was written in the first century B.C. For wisdom, the fashioner of all things, creator of all things, taught me there is in her, in wisdom, a spirit that is intelligent, holy, unique, manifold, subtle, mobile, clear, unpolluted, distinct, invulnerable, loving the good, keen, irresistible, beneficent, humane, steadfast, sure, free from anxiety, all-powerful, overseeing all, penetrating through all spirits that are intelligent, pure, and altogether subtle. That's quite a list. That's almost a list of divine characteristics. Here, given to wisdom. Wisdom, beneficent, all-powerful, overseeing all. For wisdom is more mobile than any motion. Because of her pureness, she pervades and penetrates all things. She is the breath of the power of God. A pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty. There are some identical words there with Hebrews. There is nothing defiled that gains entrance into her, for she is a reflection of eternal light. Another exact identity with Hebrews. A spotless mirror of the working of God, an image of God's goodness. Although she is but one, she can do all things. And while remaining in herself, she renews all things. In every generation, she passes into holy souls and makes them friends of God. She is more beautiful than the sun, excels every constellation of the stars. Compared with the light, she is found to be superior. She reaches mightily from one end of the earth to the other, and she orders all things well. I loved her and sought her from my youth. I desired to take her for my bride and became enamored of her beauty. She glorifies her noble birth by living with God. And the Lord of all loves her, for she is an initiate in the knowledge of God and an associate in his works. Now that was written in the first century B.C. about wisdom. Who, metaphorically, is described in virtual divine terms as the agent of God's creation, as the sustainer of God's creation, as the spotless mirror that reflects God, as the virtual pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty. It's a very interesting text. It's one of the texts that Richard Balcom some years ago said sort of paved the street to allow the church to have vocabulary that it could borrow, as it were, to describe Jesus Christ in divine terms. Yes. That's a wonderful question. Uh, scholars have, over the centuries, pondered that question. But maybe you know that in the 20th century, with the advent of the most modern feminist movement, Lady Wisdom has become a hero to many feminists. And they have said, Aha! We always knew that there was a feminine reality to God. And as you might know, that in the most radical of feminism that has said Christianity is hopelessly sexist, there is even a movement to worship Lady Wisdom almost apart from worshiping traditional God and Christ. So we have kind of a controversy 
the last 25 years of events around this. I mean, there have been feminist conferences where they have communion and God and Jesus and the Spirit are never mentioned, only Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom invites you to the communion table, etc. And this has been declared by others as heresy. And so you, you can begin to see the, the possibilities of enormous theological conflict here. Now, on a more subdued note, I think it's, there may be some theological significance. Now, of course, the tradition goes back to Proverbs, where you have the picture of, of women as those who call men. So, in a sense, the image has kind of a sexist origin of the role of women as those who invite men to significance. But, yes, it, it does open the discussion, shall we say, of this aspect of talking about the divine. And um, I don't know if Father Karras would want to say anything, but in the, in the Protestant tradition, we, we move very strongly to a, a very strong male God, partly because Protestants never could appreciate the Virgin Mary. And the Roman Catholic tradition always had the Virgin Mary, who at some points in the history of the church was likened to Lady Wisdom. Now we're getting into very complex theological territory here. But probably a reality is that some parts of the church have kept alive at least the discussion of the possibility of a so-called feminine side to God. God, after all, is not a man. God is spirit. And, you know, we have medieval mystics like Julian of Norwich, a woman who took a man's name. Profound medieval mystic. If, if any of you want to read some classic medieval mystic spirituality, you might cry reading Julian. And she eventually talks about God as mother. This is what century was Julian? 14th? Pardon? I think she was the 14th century. My medieval history is a little shaky. And 14th century. She even calls Jesus Christ her mother. Meaning, meaning that God, the reality of God, is big enough to incorporate male and female and meet the needs of all humanity. So there's a long tradition in the church. It's not just 20th century stuff. I discovered a great essay. There was a... I hope this isn't too far afield. This, this is a wonderful, interesting question. There was a very famous late 19th century pious Protestant woman named Hannah Whitehall Smith. Some of you have heard of Hannah Whitehall Smith. She wrote a book that was a bestseller, still in print, called The Christian Secret of a Happy Life. One of the most powerful, best-selling Protestant devotional books ever written by this woman, Hannah Whitehall Smith. What most people don't know is she also wrote another little book that has a marvelous chapter in it entitled God as Mother. Most of her devotees would be shocked to know that she once wrote a, an essay on God as mother. So I like to unveil this at various appropriate points among those who admire Hannah Whitehall Smith, who are often the more conservative in the church, who don't think much of women's roles in the church. And Hannah Whitehall Smith, I think it was 1885 or so, wrote this essay in which she gave as I recall, 11 arguments why we should view God as mother. Bible arguments, she called them. So there is a tradition in the church that struggles with this question. Thank you. I, w I wasn't really planning to go off quite so, so long on that, but that's, that's, we need to broaden our theological education. Bob.
We still, you know, in our Baptist hymnody, we still sing some Bernard of Clairvaux. We, we've cut out all the things from the verses that we think are too Catholic, but we still sing some Bernard of Clairvaux in our hymnal. Thank you. Okay. Lady Wisdom is part of where this language comes from. In other words, the church in the first century had to find the words to express its theology. And because it was a Jewish movement, it went to the Jewish well, as it were, a vocabulary for expressing the exalted status of Jesus Christ. And that's where much of this language comes from. Second, it is asserted in the book of Hebrews that Jesus Christ is superior to angels. And there's actually quite a long section, starting in chapter 1, verse 4, all the way to chapter 2, verse 9, about Jesus' superiority to the angels. It's a little puzzling to me. Excuse me. It's a little puzzling to me why the author of Hebrews spends so much time saying Jesus is superior to the angels. Further puzzling to me is almost all major scholars on Hebrews say uh, worshiping angels wasn't an issue for the audience that got this book. Uh, this is just sort of a theological statement. I tend to think, well, I'm a little bit in the minority here, that given the space that the author of Hebrews may be writing out of the context in which he thinks there is a danger in the church of giving too much attention to angels. Now we have some clue from the book of Colossians, chapter 2, that there might have been a movement in the early church of giving too much attention to angels, giving angels too much status. Now, angels were quite important in Judaism at this time. They start to acquire names. And of course, you know Gabriel and Michael. and so on. Gabriel and Michael were two of the seven angels who always stood in God's presence and never sat down. They stood in the presence of God, ready to do God's bidding. I, I can't remember the name of all seven. There's Raphael, uh, Gabriel, Michael, and I can't remember the others. Again, the other day, but Raguel is one, and we have their names from a Jewish writing called First Enoch that gives us the name of, names of the seven angels who stood in the presence of God. There was a famous Jewish scholar named Judah Golden who, in a wonderful essay some years ago, had this opening line. In Judaism of this time, God was nigh, but angels were nigher. And there was this tendency, which I think I've seen erupt again in the 20, late 20th century, that somehow angels give us a chance to be close to the divine. And I, I don't want to get into this too deeply, but sometimes I think the current Christian fascination with angels borders on angel replacement of the worship of God and Christ and the Spirit. Whether that's the case or not, Hebrews has this long passage about how Jesus is superior to the angels. It may reflect a context, it may, in which there was a danger in some circles in the church to give too much attention to the angels. Yes? All the names of angels that existed at this time were masculine, yes. After all, this was a male-centered environment. And so all the names that have survived of Jewish angels at this time are male names. 
whether the angels, Jesus once made a statement, you know, indicated the angels didn't have sexual identity. So, you know, I'm not into the biology of angels, but I would assume they were spiritual beings without sexual identity, but they had male names because it was a male culture. Anything else about angels? Yes, Emily. Right. Yes. Right. The, the observation is that already we see in the Old Testament and the history of Israel the strong function of angels as ministers of God who appear at various crucial points to do things. And Emily is asking me, did this role for angels grow in Judaism at this time contemporaneous with the New Testament? Yes, I think it did. I, I remember, if I may tell this personal story, Bob and I both did our doctoral work at Harvard. That's how we met. We both did our doctoral studies in New Testament at Harvard. And on my comprehensive examination, John Strugnell, one of my toughest professors, had a question about the role of angels at this time, but not just in Judaism. He wanted to know the role of angels in some obscure ancient Near Eastern literature, and I remember I knew absolutely nothing about it. Nothing. And so I wrote on my exam, I really don't know anything about this but I would guess such and such. And we, our written exams were followed up with oral exams a week later. And we sat down before the whole faculty one at a time. And so there I was in the room with the faculty. And Professor Strugnell picked up my exam, waved it in front of my face, and he said, Mr. Scholler, can you defend anything you wrote? I was wise enough to say, no, sir, I, I cannot defend anything I wrote. He said, well, would you like to give a better answer now? And of course, in that week, I knew I'd really goofed on that question. So I had filled my mind. So I gave quite a discourse at that point to redeem myself about the role of angels. Yes, in answer to your question. Well, that's the second unit of Hebrews. Then it says that uh, choir members are leaving. That's always approved of. <laughs> Chapter 3, we find that Jesus is called the apostle and high priest of our confession. So here's a glimmer of the high priest role that's going to be developed. The apostle role is not. But then notice it says that Jesus was faithful just as Moses was faithful. And so we get here a very brief comparison of Jesus and Moses. Now this is not surprising because Moses was one of the, in my judgment, there were three great worthies in the history of Israel, Abraham, Moses, and David. And at various points, the New Testament asserts that Jesus is greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, and greater than David. Because those are sort of the three pivots in the history of Judaism that are absolutely critical. Abraham, the first Jew, the father of the nation. Moses, the liberator from Egypt and the lawgiver. And David, of course, the great king. So Moses is very important in the history of Judaism, extraordinarily so. And in fact, a lot of attention was given to Moses. Philo, I think we mentioned Philo two weeks ago, if you remember, the Jewish philosopher who lived in Alexandria, Egypt, and, and there are several things about the book of Hebrews that have certain resonances with Philo's style of writing and so on. But Philo 
wrote a two-volume biography of Moses because Moses was so important. And in that work, he, he praises Moses as morally perfect, as having known all the languages of the world automatically, as having enormous wisdom. And he calls Moses a prophet, a priest, a lawgiver, and a king. And he gives Moses all these sort of reigning titles. And so Moses was seen as someone who was remarkably close to God, as one of God's choicest servants. And so it is not surprising that the author of Hebrews now, in this Christological presentation, has to compare Jesus to Moses. And it's very Interesting. For one thing, Hebrews never criticizes Moses. Very careful not to utter criticism against Moses. The Gospel of John writes about Moses. Paul writes about Moses. Every New Testament author, in, or many New Testament authors, have to negotiate the territory of Moses and how that relates to Jesus Christ. Hebrews is very careful not to criticize Moses. But this is what he says. Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. Why? Moses was faithful in all of God's house. This is going to be a clever argument. Moses was faithful in God's house. Verse 5. But Christ was faithful over God's house. Just that little prepositional shift from in to over. Moses was really great, but he served in God's house. Jesus Christ served over God's house, the place of authority, and thus he's greater than Moses. Very clever little nuance. Or he says Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. So Moses, as, as it were, represents the house itself. But Jesus Christ, as the one through whom God created all things, as the one in whom God sustains all things, Christ, in a sense, is the builder of the house in which Moses served. So, Christ is deserving of more glory than Moses. This becomes an important argument in the development of Hebrews to show that Jesus Christ is superior to all the things in the past. In the past, God spoke through the prophets, but now God has spoken through his Son. God may have worked through angels, but Jesus Christ is higher than all the angels. Moses may have been a superb servant in the house, always obedient to God, but Jesus Christ is over the house. So Jesus Christ is the superior one. He is the one to whom worship and attention should be given. And in a sense, all this is going to be prelude leading up to what we will look at next week, the presentation of Jesus as the great high priest. So next week we'll continue Christology. We'll do Jesus as the great high priest, and we will do Jesus' humanity and his identity with the pilgrims. One last thing, though, today, is at the very end of Hebrews, there's a beautiful benediction, which you've heard in church many times. The end of chapter 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, make you complete in everything good so that you may do his will, working among us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's right near the end of Hebrews chapter 13. 
Now, actually, the language of that benediction doesn't correspond much with the language of Hebrews, except for the words eternal covenant, the blood of the eternal covenant. Now, whether the author of Hebrews wrote this benediction himself, or whether he borrowed it from the liturgy of the early church, or whether he borrowed it and added the phrase by the blood of the eternal covenant, we can never know. But this is also an exalting view of Jesus Christ related to his death, the blood of the eternal covenant, and attributes to Jesus Christ glory forever and ever. Now, we have time for questions. Yes? question is, is there any literature, is there any way to get an indication of what impact the book of Hebrews might have had on Jewish-Christian relations at this time? Is that fair? Sad to say, no. We have almost no evidence of how any of the early church writings impacted the relationship between Jews and Christians at this time almost zero. Uh, the Christian writings kind of went their own way. We learn from Christian writings quite a bit about how Christians viewed Jews. We don't have many Jewish writings that were written after the Christian movement got off the ground up until the beginning of the rabbinic publications, about 200 A.D. And then the Jewish writings are markedly silent about Christians hardly mention them at all. Now, eventually there are some references to Jesus as a magician, sorcerer, who led people astray, and there are some condemnations of Christians, one-liners, but there's not much. So we have very, very little. We do have some very indirect internal Christian evidence of some Christian groups that were heavily Jewish so heavily Jewish they denounced Paul as you know having gone too far in favor of the Gentiles and so on uh, so we have a few clues but we don't have much what we do know is that as the second century unfolded as we mentioned two weeks ago the church and Judaism grew further and further apart. Another question, yes. All right. The question is, would the opening verses of Hebrews be effective in speaking with Jehovah's Witnesses or any other group that, from our perspective, has a deficient Christology? Per my personal experience is no. <laughs> I've stopped enjoying debate with Jehovah's Witnesses, I must confess. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses, the most astute, would argue. This would be the basis of their argument and would be true of some other movements apart from Jehovah's Witnesses. The basis of their argument would be this. Notice that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. He is not God. Notice that he is a reflection of God's glory. That he is a reflection of God's glory. So that supports our teaching that Jesus is divine, but just below God. And so actually the texts 
do give the Jehovah's Witness a little toehold. That's the, that's the nature of the reality. And that was an issue in the early church, you know, before there were ever Jehovah's Witnesses. The question was, how do you read this language? Do you read it that Jesus is identical with the Father? This is what the great Nicene and Chalcedonian confessions that shaped the orthodoxy of the church finally settled on, that Jesus is very God of very God. Or is Jesus to be understood as divine, but just one notch below? That debate already existed in the 4th century of the church, if not earlier, 3rd century. I have a wonderful debate I sometimes have my students act out in class. Origen's dialogue with Heraclides, do you know that? It was discovered, not this, Origen was a church father who wrote in the beginning of the 3rd century, and his dialogue with Heraclides was not discovered until 1947. And in there, there's a, it's like a transcript of a theological exam. And it's wonderful because part of it's on this very Christological question. And so I have my students take the different parts of the dialogue and just read the dialogue. And they're kind of shocked to know that in 220 A.D. this was the the script. And it's dealing with that question of how do you say that Jesus is identical with God in view of the language that, shall we say, never mixes it up. Jesus never sits on the throne with God at his right hand. It's always God who sits on the throne with Jesus at his right hand. So, yeah, if you enter a theological debate on this, you're getting into extraordinarily deep water. Big theological question. Yes? No, it's the same. That does say the word... Yeah, okay. Listen listen to this. Gospel of John. Then we're going to quit. But the Gospel of John says, In the beginning was the word... Now, by the way, it's not so evident, but the word in the beginning of the Gospel of John is a, is a almost another term for wisdom. And these statements also come from the wisdom tradition of Judaism. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Notice the Word was with God, not God was with the Word. The Word was God. Come back to that in a moment. All things came into being through Him. So, first of all, they would point out that the creation was through Christ, just like Hebrews. Through Christ. Paul says that. Hebrews says that. John says that. God created through Christ. So the Jehovah's Witnesses would say that gives Jesus second notch status. Now the line, the word was God, that you've pointed out. This is a great controversy. Most Orthodox Christians have argued, aha, here's our proof. The word was God. And, and I agree. That's what it really should mean. The Jehovah's Witnesses take their their toehold on the fact that there's no article. It doesn't say, and the word was the God. It says the word was God, and so they often translate it, and the word was a God. And then we get into very technical questions about Greek grammar and the construction of a Greek sentence and how to read this that has been debated also since the third century in the church. It was already a debate then how to read this sentence. It's been a debate ever since. Articles still written on it. I saw one just the other day. People still struggle with exactly how to read that phrase. I think the most sound reading of that phrase is the word was God, that it is an affirmation of the deity of Christ. But it isn't dealing with all the questions of Christology. But So, you know, we'd like to think that John 1, 1 settles this question. But a well-trained Jehovah's Witness will say, you don't know what you're talking about. Look at the Greek text with me. It says, a God. And then you're back to that 
sort of classic argument. Let's leave it there. I think they're wrong, but I don't know how to prove it to a Jehovah's Witness. God bless you. Next Sunday we'll continue with the Christology of Hebrews. We'll see you then.